Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Navara FM. Unlike Prince Philip, we are still here and we are still very much serving our adoring public. My name is Aaron Mastani. <laughs> you can find me at Aaron Mastani on Twitter. Today I'm joined by James Butler at Pierce Penless. Hi, James. Hi, hi, hi. Today we'll be talking about the media and the electoral left. If you haven't already noticed, there is a general election underway. We can't talk about it too specifically, of course, because of Ofcom guidelines around journalism in relation to the general election. But we can talk more generally, I suppose, about the, the broader I mean, we, context. As long as it's uh, just and balanced. Um, yeah. So we'll stay... We're not saying vote anybody. A little bit. <laughs> First thing is an observation. Labour are 15 points behind the Tories and a common rejoinder, and that is what informs today's show, and I'm as guilty of it as anybody else, is that the media is the difference. With an outright mm. bias against the policies and personalities of the left, not just today, but since time immemorial, uh, and purposeful complacency against Labour... Uh, uh, and per- we'll edit that when it goes to the podcast. Uh, purposely <laughs> complacency against Labour, especially now as it's... Confu- God, my... Should we start again? <laughs> I'm going to start again. Hold on. This is going out live. Start again. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Navarra FM. <laughs> Unlike Prince Philip, we are still here and we are still very much serving our adoring public. My name is Aaron Bastani, at Aaron Bastani on Twitter. And today I'm joined by the immarcessible James Butler at Beers Panelist. Hi, James. Here for the reload. <laughs> <laughs> Today we'll be talking about the media and the electoral left. Of course, we will be discussing that in relationship to the imminent general election taking place on June the 8th. Please register to vote by May the 22nd. But due to Ofcom regulations, we can't go into the specifics of who people should vote for and so on. Nevertheless, we're talking about the media precisely because it's a very common rejoinder, and I'm as guilty of it as anybody else, when discussing why Labour are 15 points behind the Tories, with the claim being that there's an outright bias against the policies and personalities of the left, especially so with Labour now being led by its most left-wing leader, arguably since George Lansbury. So what does media bias in the context of UK politics really mean? And is it possible for the left both in and beyond Labour to do much about it? That question has a double meaning, not only because there's this general election, which we are all so extremely excited about, but Navarra Media is itself an organisation directed by left-wing aims and values. And some of us, from time to time, find ourselves on mainstream TV and radio outlets too. So, James, I'll start with a simple question. When people say the media is biased against left-wing politicians like Jeremy Corbyn, what precisely do they mean? Well, I mean, it's an interesting one. And I think just before I answer that question, I, I, I think it's important to say that talking about the media is a double-edged sword for the left, right? Um, because it, can, it obviously can lend an ear to conspiracy theories, and we'll come on to talk about those today. But also because complaints about media can make you look weak. Uh, we should be critical about the media. We should think about the way it produces and reproduces ideology, the way in which it paints a fundamental world picture. But I, I think one shouldn't be surprised at it or expect that much sympathy about media bias. Um, I mean, complaining about media bias if you're on the left is, is much like, you know, saying you're going to walk to France and then complaining about the fact the English Channel is in the way. Well, you knew it was there, so what are you going to do about it? That, I think, is the more important question. But so, is the media biased against left-wing leaders in general, and Jeremy Corbyn in particular? Yes. Um, the, the famous example to point here is, is the one that's often cited by defenders of the Corbyn project, 
which is a study by the LSE that uh, found, you know, what was it? It was 75%, mm. three quarters of press coverage. Misrepresents Jeremy Corbyn, um, although I think its authors sometimes overstate its conclusions. Uh, I mean, it talks about the percentage of stories that are hostile or critical to Corbyn, but there's not much reason to expect a 50-50 balance per se. I mean, the notion that that should be your entitlement is, is a questionable one. Um, nor am I very much convinced that neutral reporting is either easy to achieve or very often like that desirable. Um, the notion that you should uh, aim at a kind of bloodless, um, you know, pseudo-Olympian uh, perspective on things is, I think, rather questionable. But, OK, so... You know, I, I think it's unquestionable the media is biased against Corbyn. I would question very much whether that's the only thing responsible for the, the poll gap, but I think it has something to do with it. Yeah, so there's that LSE... Uh, what was it? It was a study, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was 75% of press coverage. I think it was overwhelmingly focusing on print media. Yeah. Um, a recent poll by Labour List, uh, Labour blog, I think it was yesterday, found that 86% of Labour List readers think the media is biased against Jeremy Corbyn. So this is a... I'm curious about the 14% who died. That's quite bizarre, isn't it? <laughs> so that's a big theme. And of course, many of those people won't be particularly supportive of Jeremy yeah, Corbyn yeah. as as Labour leader. Uh, the Media Reform Coalition found the BBC to be biased. There's a great article written by Tom Mills up on the New Statesman on precisely that. Uh, Tom Mills, excellent scholar. If you want to read more about... The BBC and its political history, he's got a book out with Verso Books. What's the title of it called? Oh, it's fantastic. We did a podcast. Yeah. If you just go to navaramedia.com, search Tom Mills in the search the bar. Cover, the yellow cover, I can't recall the name. That's a standing book. So there is evidence for both uh, a partial biased media, both in regard to print and in regard to our quote-unquote public service broadcaster. And in addition to that, uh, the membership broadly think it's true. I'd add to what you've just said, yes, it's clearly not the only thing which is holding a Labour back. And yes, uh, observing its existence is rather like saying, well, there's the English Channel stopping me from walking to France. But do you think the scale of particularly the response of the print media to Jeremy Corbyn in the first few weeks of, win of him winning that Labour leadership, for people like us, that was entirely anticipated. But we have to remember there are lots of people out there who don't have a structural critique of the media, who maybe vaguely centre-left, maybe want a change in politics, maybe voted for a Jeremy Corbyn, having never been a, a Labour member before or having, you know, selected more right-wing candidates previously. So do you think maybe the fact that Corbyn is now leading the Labour Party has opened some people's eyes to just how partial particularly the print media can be. Yes, I think so. And I think what's therefore important is to come in and say that actually this isn't a conspiracy. Um, and, you know, I've said that twice now already, and I think it's going to be increasingly important over the course of this campaign uh, to, to, to point out that, it, you know, it doesn't require a conspiracy for the media to act like this. I mean, there, there are, and so there are two things here. And British media is pretty distinctive because British media is unlike, say, the media in the United States in that it has this kind of very big, this very central kind of state-funded broadcast of the BBC, which has its own dynamics and its own politics, and I don't want to repeat uh, the, the interview you, you did with Tom Mills, so I shan't. Um, but I think it's uncontroversial to say that the BBC inclines to give the Tories, when they're in power, a softish time. Um, you know, I don't think it's as flagrant as some people think, but uh, the BBC accedes relatively comfortably to the worldview of most conservative politicians. Uh, it likes a relatively uh, constrained form of politics, uh, and 
it's partly just an institution that is still staffed, at particularly at its higher levels, but throughout, by the British establishment. They're trained in the same institutions, they're soaked in the same culture, uh, they go broadly to the same private schools. Um, and this is also true of its kind of flagship news shows behind the scenes as well. And, and one of the things when talking about the BBC is, is there's, you know, one has to remember it's, it's not a monolithic institution, right? It's a huge, huge, huge institution. Um, and, and I think it's interesting to think about the way in which kind of politics refract across that institution, but it's a little bit uh, off topic. Um, uh, but the second part of that is to say the British press is really bad. It's really, really bad. And most English people don't re realise this because infamously English people only ever speak one language. Um, the, the British press is, as a whole, unbelievably trivial uh, and incredibly self-regarding. Uh, it's instinctively averse to ideas or thinking uh, regarding anyone who has any thinking or any kind of uh, uh, you know, a, you know, interest in ideas as you know, uh, deeply suspect and ideas themselves as being a kind of possible sign of degeneracy. I mean, the sheer level of self-referential gossip, it turns out, makes it resemble a kind of human centipede. I mean, it, really, the British press is pretty revolting. And it, you know, it's, it's, it's even more disgusting when you look at the lobby the lobby journalists, you know, the, these people who, who act as kind of glorified stenographers. It's, you know, it, it really is miserable. And it's, and it's not true of national presses elsewhere. There is a much broader uh, range of opinion in continental Europe in the press. There is a much broader range of opinion in the press in, say, uh, somewhere like Brazil, uh, which has an incredibly diverse uh, uh, press uh, and, and quite a serious intellectual press as well. So that that's on Mill's book is The BBC, Myth of a Public Service. I should have remembered that. It's a really excellent book. Again, I think one of my favourite books of the last 12 months, actually. So please uh, go to Verso Books website and buy it. There's probably a sale on. There's always a sale on at Verso. Great people. <laughs> we love Verso very much. Um, yes, in regards to, let's talk about the print media, I guess, for a bit. And I suppose the conversation will orient itself around the print and the BBC, although we've probably got quite similar things to say about both for very different reasons. Um, the print media, like I say, is incredibly banal, strange, childish. Uh, that's not just in regard to its continental cousins, the United States. You know, the biggest selling newspapers in the United States, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, uh, the Chicago Sun. These are all grown-up papers. They all have sort of the Times-style coverage, if not better, and the Times is the paper of record in this country and it's gone massively backwards in the oh, last yeah. 10, 15 years. So even with the United States, and of course, yeah. Brits, it doesn't happen so much now because, of course, this country's going down the pan. But historically, Brits <laughs> like to point to the United States and go, ah, stupid Americans all stu you know, shooting each other and you know, all their police are armed and they're all idiots and they're all uneducated and uh, they don't you know, have Richard Curtis films. It's very bizarre, sort of xenophobic. Curtis films are not culture view of 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 uh of the united states and yet actually they have a far more robust critical print media uh than we do yeah i mean i think i think it's interesting. strange i think it's interesting i mean it, that's true and it's i think it's partly to do with the size of the united states and the history of its print media which is like quite quite interesting in itself la times sorry um I mean, like, I am less enamoured of it than you are, but I think generally I would say that there is probably a higher standard. Um, you know, certainly, I mean, you know, like, I mean, I, I think it's ambiguous. I mean, I would say that, I mean, I'm trying to think, you know, I, I, you know, do I subscribe? I, I, I pay money to The Guardian. 
um, simply because... Still, even after that uh, Nick Cohen article? Uh, yeah, well, you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I reconsider the money I pay to The Guardian every so often, but, you know, I still I think it's... You know, it is a good paper, But, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I pay for the FT, yeah. which I think is important, because, yeah. you know, you need to know what the bourgeoisie think. Mm. And then most of my subscriptions are not to R2 journals or to things like the London Review of Books, to the New Left Review, to... Uh, you know, a couple of uh, other left-wing journals. And of course, NavarraMedia.com. <laughs> I, think, I think the amount of unpaid work I put into the project uh, uh, allows me not to put <laughs> any money into it. Um, but look, I mean, so, 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 so yeah, I mean, I think I mean, there's also an interesting thing to, to trace with the Times, and the Times goes from being, um, you know, really the, the paper of record for the kind of British bourgeoisie and the, the, the kind of British establishment, to kind of, to, which it still has, but, it, you know, there, there is now also... Cause remember you know like George V was euthanized in order to ensure that the the headline about the king's death was in the times rather than the red tops anyway so like there's a class structure to british journalism as well what i would say is the thing that you that unites both american and british media is kind of the great monetary black hole right and the the question of funding models which i think actually has a serious impact on the kind of journalism that that is performed particularly in britain um you know, if you look at the, the, the kind of chart of ad revenue, uh, it, it sort of climbs like, like a mountain until about 2000, and it just drops off a cliff. Mm. Uh, and if you put the line of kind of uh, digital ad buys next to it, it's a kind of tiny blip underneath mm. it. I mean, there is a, there are like, and this is not news, but um, yeah, <clears throat> I mean, the, this is, you know, this has a major impact on the kind of work that can be funded um, and the kind of, you know, the, the kind of, you know, so if you can have a high turnover, like relatively low cost form of journalism, like comment journalism, uh, like, you know, employing uh, relatively young reporters with very little experience, this is the kind of thing, the kind of cost saving measures that the British media will do. Anyway, I mean, I think. And yet, and yet in the United States, we've seen huge innovation in that context. So you have new media outlets from the sort of progressive left with Vox, quite large, to the Alex Jones show, to the Young Turks. Young Turks, mm. I think is the biggest news channel on YouTube, has 3.5 billion views, uh, I think 3.5 million subscribers. So th that context of the decline, particularly of daily print news, has led to insurgents elsewhere in the US media environment. That's not been replicated here. Why is that? Well, I mean, I think I think there's a, that, okay. So there's the, this is a very very complex question, and I think the media environment in the US is a little bit different to what you to how you describe it, in that like people still go to these central outlets, these trusted outlets for news, um, but there's you know there's a structure of kind of American media which is, I guess it guess like a bit different um, that you know has to do with the history of kind of cable television in the country and the way in which kind of news becomes infotainment um, and and stuff like that. So I'm thinking of a a really very brilliant book by a scholar called. Marcus Pryor, I've referenced it before, it's called Post-Broadcast Democracy. And his argument is that people learn <clears throat> political information largely through serendipitous means, right? So you learn about inflation and you go to a supermarket and you pick up a, a can of soup and it's like, you know, five cents, ten cents more than you're expecting. You think, oh God, like uh, my wage hasn't gone up, Christ. Um, and so, so he says, like, so this is the, the, the history of, of political engagement in US media. Is pre-TV, political engagement is primarily mediated through print and it's limited to those who are capable of engaging with it. Right, so kind of intelligent, uh, university educated, very often uh, highly literate, probably urban, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Um, 
the, then the rise of TV makes news more uh, demotically accessible. Uh, you know, it's, it's importantly, however, constrained. So consumers who prefer entertainment have to sit through a news channel, have to sit through a news broadcast before entertainment comes on. Uh, so this means that there is a relatively cohesive uh, political discourse in television news um, until the kind of fragmentation of TV, uh, so the rise of kind of cable uh, and, and kind of satellite channels in the United States. And this produces two phenomena. One is uh, cable news is kind of infotainment, right? Um, so the kind of uh, the, the kind of highly character-driven form and highly partisan forms of news that you see in the United States. But it also permits those who uh, prefer entertainment to news to avoid news altogether, right? So this is one of the things that is quite interesting about the history of, of news consumption in the United States is that people who don't want to consume news are, find it much easier to be politically completely unengaged. Um, and, you know, this is a story that also happens with the internet. Um, but those who do consume news are increasingly have no kind of shared sense of a political narrative, have no sense, uh, no kind of shared object that there was a shared product that they consu consume. Mm. So that there isn't a kind of a uniting story there. Or even a language, quite, right? Yeah, 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 not at all. So it means that the more kind of politically committed and highly partisan citizens are then in the kind of decided seat, right? Um, so they're the people who really drive kind of political change in the United States. And this changes in moments of crisis. Like one of the things Price says <laughs> is like, okay, well, like in post 9-11 and moments of war, maybe in moments of economic crisis people are driven to consume news even if they're not kind of standard news consumers um, so now there, there's some some stuff here that I think could be elaborated on like there's no content analysis and no question of like why news is produced in the, in the way it is in, in prior but I think this tells us one of the things that's quite interesting about the contemporary media landscape is partisanship is good uh, you know having political opinions is good it's useful this is the reason for the success of these projects that you're talking about is that they speak to things that people are concerned about and, and that are meaningful mm -hmm. now I think that also for us, there's a question for, for those who are politically engaged, is that there's a question of how you use that and how uh, you, you use that in a way that's kind of not deceptive or debilitating or, you know, and so but on. But it's not just partisan projects, is it? So you've got The Intercept in the United States and there's nothing similar over in the UK. Yeah. Despite yeah. clearly a glaring need for yeah, it to I, exist. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I, mean I, think there's, I think there are reasons, like specific reasons for the UK. Do you not just think, cause, I mean, I'll, I'll interrupt, do you not just, for me, so I'll throw this out to you so we can sort of abbreviate the conversation yeah. a bit. Do you not just think that the existence of the BBC inhibits innovation amongst, A, people that would want to fund yeah. this stuff amongst the ruling class, and then B, the journalists that would go out and do it? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, not, that's not a controversial mm. thing for me. But like, I also think the BBC does good things that are quite important. Mm. Um, I mean, I think, I think to, to come back, I think we, we should you know, maybe concentrate on media bias for one moment because I think media bias, again, like, is, is quite important here. And it's actually maybe important when talking about the BBC, right? Because you know, people think about, you know, like the, the, the... So the BBC is the thing, I think, that the United States lacks. And so when Pryor talks about like, the absence of any kind of central cohesive uh, shared yeah. uh, thing that people consume, I think that's still <clears throat> true of the BBC. And yeah. that makes... That makes it possible for there to be a, a political conversation in a way that is not necessarily true in the United States, but also inhibits it. And also, you know, it gives enormous power to the people who frame that kind of news. And the, the, the case in point here is someone like Laura Kunzberg, who is you know, BBC political editor, who is, you know, <laughs> uh, who receives a lot, I must say, actually, quite a lot of horrifying abuse, but who is also, you know, uh, you know I, I think perhaps, uh, I think unambiguously, uh, you know, 
anti-Corbyn. Terrible journalist. Um, but I mean, I to say so. So the thing <sighs> that worries me about the discourse about someone like Kunzberg is that there's a danger of kind of deep self-delusion that you know, if only there weren't media bias and distortion, if only media reported on the left properly, if only people really knew, that's all that's standing in the way of a real thumping left upsurge. And so the danger, I think, is, is not looking at the more difficult questions for our politics and strategy. You know, when has the media ever been for us? Like the advances to the left historically have always been in the face of, a, you know, it involves counter-hegemonic projects that, that contest the way that stories are told, the way that news is done, the way that information is distributed. But like, it, you know, you know, it's always, it has always been an uphill struggle. In 1950, the claim is that half the print media were for Labour and half the print media were for the Conservative Party. Mm. in Britain. And then fast forward to, I mean, the great, the great example is The Sun used to be the Daily Herald and that was owned by the TUC. Uh, the Daily Mirror was originally started as a newspaper for women. So there was a decisive change in British print media, especially with the Wapping strike, Rupert Murdoch, uh, and really, I mean, the arrival of The Sun as a debasing force in British public life. I yeah. think was, I mean, it anchors a lot of this conversation. Yeah. I just want to talk about the, because it's not just Koonsberg, right? You know, you can focus on just one character and, you know, some people might say, I love Navarro Media, but I find Aaron Bastani terrible. Well, you should still go to Navarro, <laughs> you should still go to support.navarromedia.com and support one of the most important vital <laughs> media projects on the British landscape, precisely because there's so many other people doing so much great stuff. And it's the same with The Guardian, right? I can say that I love Aditya Chakraborty and I don't like Nick Cohen. None of them you know, define the Guardian. It's a, mm. it's a, you know, it's an agglomeration of different people, but it's not just Coonsberg with the BBC. You no, know, it was Emily Maitlis. Did you see this yeah, tweet? Yes, it's fascinating. When, it? when the when the general election was kind of, uh, you know, Theresa May yeah. made the announcement outside Ten Downing Street, and then Emily Maitlis said, "Can Labour still get rid of Corbyn? Maybe there can be another coup." It's like, what planet are you living on? <laughs> and Nick Robinson with these kind of, you know, occasionally sort of bizarre tweets interspersed my time with this kind of this bizarre 2017 wokeness that come from previously <laughs> moronic conservative voices of which Stig Abel is one. Yeah, well, Stig Abel, I mean, that's a whole other conversation, isn't it? Um, so maybe we should talk a little bit about uh, Chomsky and propaganda. Shall, really? I've not, read, I've not heard that word <laughs> in a serious conversation for 15 years. <laughs> Neither have I, but this is one of the, the, I mean, like, say, left discussions of the media usually revolve around the kind of Chomskyan idea of, you know, the propaganda model, which comes from this kind of co-written book. Um, just, and I, 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 I so I think it, it is, it is a quite a dangerous uh, thing. If it, and one of the reasons I want to just talk about it a little is that there is a, a problem which, you know, people uh, kind of vaguely skim a kind of Chomsky book about, you know, the, like Manufacturing Consent, it's the most famous one, um, in, in which there's outline, and they go, like, oh, well, you know, like, actually, like, uh, they, they treat the media as if it were a conspiracy. And so, very, very briefly, Chomsky says, um, you know, private media, um, you know, are not, uh, you know, organisations engaged in public service, their businesses interested in the sale of a product, and those products... Uh, are readers and audiences to other businesses, i.e., advertisers. Um, so uh, he means he therefore he th therefore argues that the study of kind of structural problems in institutions are you know uh, you know absolutely ignored. Uh, and then he says like there are five you know five filters um, that 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 determine uh, kind of news content. Uh, ownership of the medium, so who owns uh, the the papers, uh, the 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 funding sources. Uh, so, i.e. advertisers. Uh, sourcing, so the kind of people that 
uh, journalists speak to and um, who they get their news from. So that might be political sources, experts, people in business, so on. Uh, flack, uh, i.e. like the number, the, the amount of kind of public reaction that can be generated uh, to a story that, that's bad. And this often involves businesses kind of hiring people to tweet at or send letters to, et cetera, et cetera. And he says in uh, uh, the United States, uh, you know, uh, anti-communism, is uh, you know the, the the religion of the United States. So any kind of distributive left project is always going to be uh, you know uh, uh, attacked by the press. Um, so I think this is like you know quite a, a normal observation. Actually, these things are all obviously true. But I think the case is overstated. And to me, the major problem lies primarily in the intellectual culture of the workers and producers within media. Um, you know, you know, there's a danger here. The vulgar form of this is to go like, oh, all news is fake. Everything is a false flag. It's all propaganda. And this is really, really toxic. <clears throat> Have you ever said the words false flag? Seriously? No. Okay. Um, I was going to say, James, but a bit surprising. Well, I, you know, I read the internet like everyone yeah. else, critically. Mm. Um and, and, you know, it, it does treat consumers as if consumers have no critical ability. And, you know, the media is less monolithic. Um, and I think, in particular, this work by Chomsky has written at a high point of media consolidation, right, where you have, like, actually quite a strong core group of media producers. And it's written really... It's 88, so it's before the rise of the internet, it's before the kind of massive change. That's the peak of cable TV yeah. Germany in the yeah, United yeah, States, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know... It, it's from an era where terms like kind of stage-managed news almost make sense. But th those terms are very dangerous, I think, because they suggest the content is simply fraudulent rather than limited. And, you know, if something is limited, it can be, un you know, you can change it, you can do something with it. If it's utterly fraudulent, then you can't. And I think that's, that really matters. And the question, you know, for me comes back to journalistic praxis. You know, what journalists are doing, what they're thinking, what they're learning, how they think about what they're doing. Um, you know, so so I mean, I think you know the the you know the work here describes things that do happen, um, but it doesn't really enter into the question of how much they shape what's produced. Okay, so we've been talking for a little while about left politics, its constraints within the media, both structurally and you know sometimes in regards to just people, people at Laura Kunzberg. I want to turn to a guy called Neil Postman. You know Neil Postman? He wrote a book called "Amusing Ourselves to Death." Uh, I think in the mid to late 80s, and it was about precisely this same set of uh, sort of uh, trends that you're talking about with Chomsky and when he's writing. And he was basically saying that, like you say, politics become a form of entertainment. And if it's not, then it's not taken seriously. And I think this explains to some extent the rise of Donald Trump and why journalists did take it so seriously, because it was great entertainment, even before... You know, during the uh, Republican primary, I was like, oh, God, here's a Trump speech. I'm going to win. He's a, he's a horrendous human being, but I loved watching it. It was captivating because mm. he's entertaining. He says ridiculous, stupid things. And, of course, at the time, nobody thought he was going to win. And I think for many people in this country, it's the same with Nigel Farage. It used to be. You know, people were watching the debates before the last general election, and they were going, oh, God, what's Farage saying about AIDS? Oh, my God, you know, and tweeting about it. And for them, it was... A form of entertainment and I think that's why people who work at the BBC will get him on BBC questions conference because they know Farage is good for a laugh now I don't think we can change this I don't think we can do much about it I don't think we live in the information age I do believe we live in the entertainment age 
And uh, so then the question for left politics has to be, you know, I don't think we can do much about it. So the question for left politics has to be, how do you subvert that in a meaningful way? Because you can't pretend it's not there. Yeah. Uh, and for me, it's twofold. One is you try and circumvent it through other medium, particularly real political organising. But then I do think within that media sort of uh, terrain, you do have to be quite entertaining. Mm -hmm. You do probably have to say quite stupid things. You do have to be quite... I just don't think that's true. Quite, quite, quite populist. Well, I think that's why Bernie Sanders was so good. I think Bernie Sanders was very, in his own way, entertaining. It didn't diminish the political content of what he was saying. Right, okay, but that's... I mean, that's, I'm not saying you have to like Donald Trump. Right? Yeah, okay, but that's objectively Varoufakis is the same. different to saying you have to say stupid things. No, 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 but Varoufakis is interesting, he's entertaining, he's captivating, he's a, as much a media personality as a politician. I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing, I just think that's the way it is. And I think with Jeremy Corbyn, for instance, that's probably one of his failings. Yeah, I mean, I he's think, not as entertaining yeah, as Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what you're talking about here, though, is charisma, basically. And you're talking about the ability to, to make an audience interested in what you have to say. That's a basic rhetorical technique that extends as far back as the ancient Greeks. But so what's new about Cor it? Corbyn's quite charismatic, is he offline? He's, but yeah, he gets people going. And he gets them going. I've seen it, but it doesn't. It doesn't translate yeah, on television. Okay. okay, it doesn't translate. On television. So, so, so you're saying that there is a form of charisma specific to the medium? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure, I can agree with that. I mean, I think that I think there are some problems here. I mean, I think, I think I agree in, to 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 a large extent that uh, one has to work with the conditions of media such that they are, which. You know, is you know, it's interested in this this kind of this kind of thing, but I, I, I don't buy that that it it vitiates all other uh, possible modes of production, possible uh, uh, you know experiments in media. You know, I, I just don't. I I'm don't not saying that. I'm okay. not saying that. But I'm saying so, that you can't. You. My point is, in regards to the mainstream media, BBC has seventy percent of TV yeah. news coverage, seventy five percent of radio news coverage. Politicians to the left have to respond to that. Yes, with counter-hegemonic projects, they have to emphasise real organising, which does overwhelmingly happen offline, although it's not distinct from media. But when they do go on the television, when they do go on the radio, they do have to, to an extent, play that game. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't disagree. And, there's, and, there's, <laughs> and there's, that's probably the best response to this problem rather than just saying, well, it's going to be hostile forever, screw them. Because if UKIP didn't have Nigel Farage, if they didn't have this gentleman who was relatively entertaining, despite the fact he's a horrendous personality, I question how far they would have gone. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think that it's unquestionable that, that, you know, for political action in the modern world, you have to be able to engage the media and that requires being charismatic, that requires being able to be on TV and make people want to listen to what you have to say. Now, I, you know, Nigel Farage sort of mobilises a certain set. 20% of, of the country, right? Yeah, 15% yeah, yeah. of the country. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I don't think it can extend beyond that. So yeah. one of the things that, that is important is that, like, you know, there has to be a multiplicity of these kinds of engagements because you, you can't rely on one person to animate the whole country. Um, you know, so... You know, but I don't, I don't, I don't really see what the argument here is. Then, like, yes, people who go on TV and radio should be charismatic and engaging. I agree with that. But the question about how that relates to the structure of the media generally, like, yeah, I mean, okay. So maybe one of the okay, things. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase it and then you can address it. Okay. My primary point is that we don't live in the information age. We live in the entertainment age. There's not much that we can do about it. The better informed people are, the more they seem to gravitate towards an affective politics. That's what I'm saying. Uh, Which seems correlative over the last 20 years now. 
Yes, but I don't. Okay, so I don't. I think doesn't the, mean they make better choices or they're better informed, particularly. N- no, I mean that that's not my objection. My my problem is with the notion of a sharp division between the two. I think it's far longer period of transformation. I, I don't think that it's be- become particularly pronounced in the last twenty years. I think it's something that emerged probably with the rise of television, then becomes pronounced probably about forty or so years ago. Um, but I, you know, I. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, I, I just don't know. I don't agree, actually. I, I don't think the world is run by people who are primarily interested in entertainment. I think it's run by people who are interested in information. Now, I think they use entertainment, but I don't think, that, I, I don't think entertainment alone is sufficient for a left politics. There has to be some sort of resistance. Well, I didn't say that. I said, okay. I said in addition to okay. real organising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, 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 I don't, no, no, it's not real organising and entertainment. It must be, it must be real organising, whatever that is, which is a slightly different question, mm. because like, I think that's a, quite a varied phenomenon. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then it's all, it's entertainment, sure, I agree with that. But it is also information, and information is a mode of resistance to, you know, what Debord would call the spectacle, mm. right? And I think that, you know, this is you know, maybe one of the, the terms we've been skirting around here is like that question, because there is a historic left analysis of media, which is to do with exactly with the capacity for kind of a regime of images to render passive and impotent uh, a quite a large majority of image consumers. And I think one of the things that a left has to do is be capable of overcoming that. Now, how you overcome that it requires you to understand how that works. It requires you to be able to operate within it, but also to understand the moments at which it's necessary to reject it uh, and not to concede to the demands of the spectacle. See, I think the, the, the Society of Spectacle by Guy Debord, fantastic book, I think it responds to a certain economics of information and a certain means of, of broadcast, which is now gone. So it used to be that you could only broadcast to many people if you had a one-to-many channel rather than a many-to-many channel, which we now have. Sorry to use rather cliched language now. This is all kind of hip 10 years ago, but it's also true. Um, When I look at my PhD, for instance, and I was interviewing people in terms of how they made sense of their own political activism in the middle of riots, for instance, it would be heavily mediatised. So there were people outside Millbank and they're watching, you know, the place get smashed up. This is the 2010 student movement. And somebody would send them a text. And one one of my uh, interviewees said they got a text from a friend in Malaysia. And they said, I'm watching you guys on the TV. What the hell are you doing? That's crazy. Mm-mm-mm. And it was at that moment he made sense of what he was doing. Okay, Other people who weren't even there were watching on Sky News going, this is incredible. There's a movement. The NUS are no longer, no longer in control. And they felt they were stakeholders in it. And they immediately started going to the meetings afterwards. So they made sense then, even their agency, of something they weren't even at through the media. So I think, yes, it can be disempowering, but I think it's more empowering than people make... Uh, sort of make hay of, especially with, with that kind of the Bordian frame. And yeah, I think politics is so heavily mediatized. Look at the English riots, for instance, 2011. We saw a, a smorgasbord of images and videos which were being shared often virally through social media uh, in August 2011, kids smashing things up, not just kids, older people as well, tend to be younger kids, but whatever, smashing things up, rioting, attacking police officers, whatever. And that triggered several nights of this rather than just one. Now, I understand those things also, you know, Brixton riots were several nights as well. Yeah. But I think the geographical spread of the English riots was heavily contingent of what the board would call the Society of Spectacle. And it wasn't disempowering. It actually allowed for greater scale. And in addition to that, permitted participants to make sense of their actions in a collective way, which would be impossible without digital media. 
Yeah, okay, so I'm going to come back to the Yeah, board. ascribe a collective agency, I mean, like, if you will. I, So I don't disagree with you that there are ways of using the diffusion of images uh, in a kind of uh, contaminatory or subversive or dissident sense. I think that's absolutely true. And it's necessarily true that in a society mediated by the image that... Uh, images of protest will also be uh, diffused and will also be... So one of the arguments that kind of sub-debordians make is that any time an image of, you know, uh, riot or, or, or you know, uh, social unrest makes its way into the media, then it is appropriated or, you know, diffused of its content. And I don't, I don't think that's actually true. I mean, I would agree with you on that. So I, I want to... So I, I want to put a pin into board for the moment because yep. we'll come back to yep. him. I want to say that there are some things that structure the British media landscape which I think make it pretty distinctive from the US one. Right? And it's and it's one of the things that make, you know, you were asking the question of why these insurgent things don't happen. And I think that there are good reasons for it. Um, and, but, and they're good. They're things that tell us about our politics more generally as well. So one is that there is an absence of any Republican sense. And I don't mean here in the, in the sense of like just cutting the head off the queen. Um, you know, I can leave listeners to, to their own uh, fantasies on that one, I think. Um, but it, it, it's an absence of a, a kind of shared sense of civic virtue, um, of the possibility of there being kind of outrage at uh, a sick body politic and outrage at corruption. So there's something very peculiar about British politics, which is that corruption is, you know, eh, it's just kind of taken for granted and it's there, you know, like the very, 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 very close links between business and government and like the transgression of those lines mm. continually. And it's partly to do with the, the the fact that there is, you know, a non-codified constitution. There is a British constitution, it's, you know, an accretion. You know, it's an accretive constitution rather than something that's determinate. It's not something that proceeds from a document, like, say, the, the American constitution. Um, you know, it, it makes argument over principles quite difficult to have in Britain. Um, and so, you know, there is also, I think, you know, a, a long enduring British scepticism, as I alluded to earlier in the show, about kind of, uh, you know, anything that goes beyond a kind of, kind of cynical, um, uh, you know, British empiricism. So, so they, and, and I think historically this is, this is, as I've said on the show before, this is part of just the result of a stalled English political uh, development after the, the English Civil War. Um, there's also class interest and class reproduction, which is a serious weakness of English intellectual life, right? I mean, like, the, the, the sheer stuntedness and the sheer kind of, uh, you know, lack of ambition in English intellectual life is partly because it's, it's so much a preserve uh, of, of, you know, people who are uh, educating a tiny number of elite institutions. Look, I held my hand up. I, I was as well. Um, but, you know, that is, that is quite key to, to limiting the things that are acceptable to say in public. Uh, there is also, I think, two things about left intellectuals or left writers specifically, um, which is that there is historically a split role here, right? But there is no strong legacy of kind of a left party or intellectual culture in which kind of proper partisan orientation exists, right? So left-ish journalists are frequently isolated, um, you know, and, and frequently, you know, made to be the kind of, you know, uh, loyal opposition in some ways, and there's a curious left Polish, you know, left pathology here as well, which is you know, one is incentivized to think that one's own uh, uh, feelings about something are more important than the questions that face the political movement as a whole, and that's something to do with the kind of structure of common journalism itself. Um, so, so those those are some particular features of the English landscape. As you want to I want to respond to a few points because yeah, yeah, yeah. there were so many great points there. We had Anthony Lowenstein on the show what a year ago, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and as he said, Aaron, it's a club, it's a club, and that's exactly it's a 
club. And when you go on to do something with a right-wing commentator, I did Sky once with Dan Hodges, it's hard to be an a-hole to them because you're meeting them in the flesh and they can be quite nice. You know, I did uh, the Jeremy Vine show with a Tory MP. I couldn't disagree with him more about a range of things, pretty much everything. But once you're in that club, it's hard not to be civilised to one another. And then, of course, from there, it's not long until you start to have drinks with these people, become friends mm-hmm. with them, mm-hmm. share opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, in regard to Oxford and Cambridge, 50% of David Cameron's cabinet went to Oxford or Cambridge. Theresa May is lauded as a meritocrat. Well, 44% of her cabinet went to Oxford or Cambridge. There was a Tory MP, I can't remember her name, in 2014, and she was asked, who's writing the 2015 election manifesto? She said, well, it's six gentlemen. Five went to Eton and one went to St Paul's. And the man who went to St Paul's is one George Osborne. So that tells you about the last government. Pretty impressive. English Civil War, my favourite civil war of all, or just called the English Revolution, of course. Charles I was executed outside Banquet House on Whitehall, which, by the way, is still there. Mm. Much of Whitehall from that period isn't there anymore, but that's still there. So go and pay homage to it, and the greatest moment in the history of the English nation. Um, and there was an a, Act of Parliament passed, and actually his execution was suspended for a few hours, so that it was made illegal for anyone to, to declare another king or queen after he died. Uh, and wow, I mean, just incredible when you think about that Republican moment and how far backwards we've gone. Then in terms of, I want to quickly return to what we were previously talking about and the entertainment thing. And I don't want, want us to stick on this because it's a difficult terrain and for listeners, it's probably quite hard and it's making the, the show a bit stulted because it's very weighty stuff. But for, for me, it's almost like there's an autonomy of the media, like some people talk about the autonomy of the political and it's producers as much as consumers who are constrained by this entertainment logic. So with the riots, the police were literally saying to like, you know, BBC or Sky, please stop broadcasting these stupid images. You are helping them scale. But Again, these producers are going, this is entertainment, this is ratings, this is eyeballs. So there's an autonomy there for a media logic and incentives for them to do these things, which often aren't in their class interest, at least in the short term. Yeah, sure. But the, the question is about how you operate there politically. Yeah, but I, I think that's an interesting idea. There's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah a, no, I there's agree. a little, little uh, amuse-bouche, you know, <laughs> autonomy of the media. And then corruption... Mm. Listeners, this is unbelievable. So the Panama Papers, 2015, how quickly we forget Mm. the Panama Papers. David Cameron's father left assets in a tax haven, Jersey. The Prime Minister's father was a tax dodger. Channel 4 approached 21 cabinet ministers, asked them, them, do you have assets in tax havens? Three said no. 18 didn't reply. 18, including Theresa May. So when I made that joke a few weeks ago about her probably having a dodgy bank account in the Bahamas, I wasn't kidding. I wasn't kidding, by the way. And yet none of this, like you say, is infused in our conversation about republicanism or corruption. And I think the big explanation for that, like you've said, is going back to that point about this nexus between finance, the media and politics, which we can talk about private schools, but fundamentally it boils down to going to the same elite universities. And yes, I went to one as well. I don't agree. I think it's private school, actually. You think I mean, so? I think, More I think than Oxford and Cambridge? Yeah, absolutely, I do. Because the people who, you know, you know I went to Oxford, so like, I, <laughs> I, can, I can say this. Like, I, the people who, you know, I arrived there and there are lots of people who all already knew each other, uh, who all already knew each other from all of these schools who've gone mm. skiing. To, I'm, I have never been skiing. Um, well, I skiing. Good for the quads. <laughs> never, never been. Um, but, you know, like, the, all these people already knew each other. Anyway, like I, so let's 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 take a step back here. 
right? And and so like, <laughs> so <laughs> you you talk about waiting, stodifying. I'm about to introduce just a, just something from Hegel. So <laughs> no, that's why people listen fine. to us, right? It's, yeah, fine. it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's not going to be. It's not going to be difficult, right? Hegel says that the bourgeois opening his newspaper over the breakfast. This is in the lectures on aesthetics. His the bourgeois opening the newspaper over the breakfast table in the morning. Is, is essentially the analogue of the old morning prayer. Yeah. So it establishes them in the same shared moral and political universe. Mm. Um, and this is just absolutely shattered these days. No longer, you know, the bourgeois no longer shares a single universe. Uh, and certainly the whole of culture is not determined by it. Nonetheless, something that, that Hegel is suggesting there is that there is a, a possible mode of political identification around a certain, you know, around ideas, around a certain, you know, shared set of values, uh, you know, and the possibility of their circulation. You know, this this is something that, d- that does not really exist until the the, the, the rise of printing. Um, and this is why Lenin, incidentally, says, you know, the paper is the scaffold around which we will build the party. The notion, you know, you know <laughs> look, I'm not a trot paper seller, but that that idea that i that ideas and conversation and writing and things that give you arguments and things that lay out the world mm. as it is uh, you know and that the, these papers and that these media th- you know uh, products play two roles one which faces into the movement mm. uh, that talks about the things that the left is thinking about and worrying about and trying to figure out mm. but one that also faces outward so when someone picks it up or tunes into it or watches it and go oh this this guy is saying yeah, okay, I want to see more of this, you know, mm. that, that kind of thing. Well, here's an argument yeah. I can now use yeah. at work yeah. or yeah. Yeah. with my friends. And so, you know, and th- so there's, there's a really great and interesting book by Benedict Anderson um, called Under Three Flags, which is all about the kind of the way that print capitalism kind of circulates uh, these ideas in the sort of late 19th century, these kind of like uh, uh, left political ideas globally, right? Like really, really globally outside and beyond Europe. Um, and what's interesting, right, is that there is now a kind of mode of screen capitalism that does the same thing. And so one of the things I think you're talking about is that is 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 a certain duality here, right? Because print capitalism is not interested or was not interested in spreading left ideas. The left used it to spread left mm. ideas. And so these capitalist modes of information production also permit, at least to some extent, and I think the argument we have is about the extent to which it's possible. Um, it, you know, reappropriation, subversion, and, you know, just... Y- utilization for our own ends and that's always been the case printing allows the spread of subversive literature radio allows pirate radio etc 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 the internet itself has many many positive potentials doom mongering about the alt-right i think has led us down uh, uh, you know a, a path of, of, of uh, uh, kind of uh, apocalypse here which i think is is wrong uh, nonetheless there's serious pathologies about the internet you know narcissistic pathologies intellectual pathologies attention deficit pathologies mm. which come with social media and that's the sting in the tail but it's where people are and it's where we have to use it can i respond to that yeah, yeah, yeah. such a great point and i i agree with you entirely long form video podcast clearly you can reappropriate appropriate that for a left intellectual project pretty easily but there's a good book i just finished reading by a guy called cal newport called deep work and he looks at the extent to which new media, particularly social media, fragments attention, mm. diminishes our ability to concentrate, uh, undermines our ability to also hold ourselves as an object of self-care. And I do wonder the, the extent which this particularly, you know, Facebook and Twitter, also Facebook, most people use Facebook, right? Facebook, I believe, now has 2 billion monthly users. Really remarkable. Most powerful media company in the history of humankind. And he's going to run for president, right? Like Zuckerberg. Yeah. It's really clear. Yeah. And I do wonder to the extent uh, that these uh, 
places can be reappropriated for a, not even a left-wing pol- politics, a humane politics, so a slow politics, a politics which privileges thought and kindness and attention above immediacy and action and responsiveness. So, yeah, I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's so, the whole show, right? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting here is like the temporality of like information flow and bombardment and the kind of almost sense of permanent shock that it can induce mm. in people. And you know, and like you talk about Trump as a production of a product of this age. And I was just thinking, you know, because like I, I, you know, I can barely remember. Yeah, you know, this is a guy, you know, because it's so constant with him. Like he's mm. so, so much the avatar of this stuff. You know, do you not remember when he suggested that like Justice Scalia was murdered? Like this is before he was running for president. He was reading like, oh, he was discovered with a pillow over his face. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you forget all this stuff. Hey, I mean, like, you Ted Cruz's father was involved in the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, so this is like, but this is the kind of stuff that leads me back to Debord, right? <laughs> like, and so, like, one of the reasons it's worth going back to the society of the spectacle in particular is that it is smarter than many of its epigonies, right? Like, you know, the people who are its imitators and its inheritors are not actually as acute as the board yeah. in, in thinking about this stuff. And, you know, and there's much in it that is overstated, or there's much that's kind of totalised that actually isn't total in reality, but polemics and manifestos do that kind of thing. Mm. You, know, it, you know, that phrasing, though, with him, you know, from him, a social, you know, the spectacle is a social relationship between people that is mediated by images. I, you know, I think that's incredibly apt way of thinking about the way in which social media and the way in which the internet works. Um, because, you know, look, I mean, in, in particular, like, I'm a textual person and, like, the, the internet is less and less a textual person. Oh, no, thing. we need to get rid of the internet fundamentally. <laughs> yeah, all right, Fundament- Donald Trump. Like, like you know, let's talk to Bill Gates and see if he can switch off the internet. Well, <laughs> Erdogan. Like, yeah, well, I mean, he does it. Um, but, you know, so the danger, the danger with this stuff is to go, like, cod kind of Gnostic, right? Like, that there is, you know, a, you know, a, you know, a false universe that is deceiving us and that's not true right it's a, it's a plane of contestation uh, it's not a plane in which you are kind of the the plaything of powerful forces against which you have no uh, no 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 recourse but like there's some stuff that it tells us in the production of media and this you know is is that you know this stuff it gels really nicely with the kind of new political terrain of like an internalized security and control and in particular that kind of very very modern need for a weak citizenship you know, the, so this, the, you know, like, and you think of the, the transformations in civil society, the notion of like a, a kind of idiosyncratic or subversive civil society, it's just almost nowhere. Um, you know, the, this kind of very thin, you know, unobstructed social texture, you know, with just like atomized consumer subjects, uh, you know, a nuclear family that goes home to at night. So, you know, the problem that arises actually out of this stuff, and I think it's one of the problems that, that, you know, the modern state confronts, is that by producing this kind of weak citizenship, uh, this citizenship heavily mediated by images and weak attachments and so on, um, you know, this itself produces citizens who are not terribly attached to the state. And it's one of the major state pathologies. This is veering off. We've got 10 minutes left. I want to just quickly return to this, though. I mean, Mm. I really want to press home this point of this question, rather, to what extent does social media turn off the capacity for political reflection. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> More than being a, a terrain, you know, I think it may actually just deactivate it through its capacity to fragment our attention and also our, our capacity to identify our subject position and our place in the world. The fact that we are maybe being oppressed in certain societies, mm-hmm. the fact that we are getting a bum deal from certain regimes, including in this one, whether it be on pay, on housing, on public services. So quickly... Do you think that it is a a terrain for political contestation or do you believe that it turns off the fundamentally reflective capacity for 
authentic, meaningful political action? Hmm. Uh, neither. Uh, I mean, I think or a bit of both, right? Like, uh, I don't think we have any choice but to engage with it in some way, but the engagement must be. And this is what one of my the difficulties I was having with your, your entertainment position is that I think there has to be something resistant here. And again, to go back to Debord, and actually he has something interesting to say about this, is that when he talks about the spectacle, he talks about it as something that is, uh, you know, that is, uh, that flattens out history, right? That that eviscerates history. The, the, the spectacle is a society of the eternal present, right? And and Debord is kind of is is you know he knows that our notion of the past is constructed, it's artificial, and whatever. Mm. What he says is that it, it you know it, the the spectacle is a machinery of forgetting because historical knowledge is productive of political change. Mm. So when you can situate yourself historically, when you can situate yourself and you can look at your situation historically, then you are capable of thinking about the way in which things change. If you are locked into an internal present, which incidentally can be the kind of uh, you know captive flow of a, a perpetually present timeline as much as anything else, um, then your, ability, your capacity to, to, to analyse and uh, you know, engage in kind of political action is is much less uh, you know is much less potent. But you know, I mean, one of the things Debord says is that the masters of the society as well are captured by this spectacle, yeah. right? Like there isn't an outside to it. So so it it means that actually the the, the capacity for political change, although attenuated, uh, it, you know, the, the resistance to it is also attenuated. Anyway, so you know, like one of the things I would say is that we must. Uh, you know, use these media to to kind of continually hammer home points about kind of the historical context and in particular the kind of contingency of things that are naturalised um, by their presentation as kind of, uh, you know, insuperable images. Yeah, I mean, it, to an extent, and I think this is why I made the point I did about entertainment and left-wing politics, is that, like I say, with this change, I think it is dramatic and I think it's actually far more revolutionary in terms of human consciousness and our ability to think about things and people really understand, you know, that could in a way propel a left-wing politics because it does turn off people's prejudices historically to socialism or to, you know, nationalisation, to public ownership, because that same fragmenting we see, like I say, uh, in terms of self-care, I think it undermines historical shibboleths around the presumed inevitabilities of politics that British people never vote for a socialist into, you know, into 10 Downing Street, which I think this stuff to an extent undermines, but I think it would also have to uh, mirror that very logic of fragmenting attention, entertainment over information. Maybe we disagree. That would be just one part of the project. But anyway, we've got under 10 minutes left. I suppose we could talk about the role of new media organisations mm. in the UK, which are politically committed. Obviously, Navarra Media is one. And what is their relationship to the bias against a perceived, uh, you know, uh, hatred, loathing towards the left wing in, in, in the UK mainstream media? Well, I mean, it's it's a really difficult question, I think, because look, there is there is a growing ecology of these kind of like small left wing media projects, media organisations, uh, of which we are one. Um, I mean, I think a lot of them are different from each other, and I think they do different things. Uh, I think it's important to replicate the thing that I was talking about uh, about you know the the idea that one derives from Lenin, you know that that notion of being inward and outward facing at the same time, right? Um, for us, it's also important to figure out how to operate you know on the terrain of uh, other media, right? Like so, so using like leveraging the, these kind of new technologies, um, you know, in order to to force oneself into the public sphere. Um, and now we haven't talked about the public sphere on the show. It's another show. 
Um, but the idea is quite important and is sort of the, the shadow part, really, of the show that we're talking, you know, of what we're talking about today. Um, it's, it, you know, I think one has to defend the capacity for thought and critical thought, and that's critical thought directed at the left as much as the right. Mm. So the idea is that one doesn't become, and look, there's a role for propaganda. I think propaganda is important. I think simplicity and clarity, calling out the enemy, all of that stuff really mm. matters. But a capacity for reflection uh, and a kind of ambitious mode of thinking uh, is really, really vital. So what it seems to me, and, and with specific reference to the media as a whole, that what, a project, what such a project must not do is engage in a kind of longer-term whinge against the media, i.e. Uh, inculcate either a sense of sort of bitter paranoia, uh, you know, so the paranoia about the world as it is, that it's unchangeable and so on, uh, well, it must not provide the seedbed for conspiracy theories. It is very, very dangerous and very, very debilitating. Uh, it cannot either adopt what I would call a deep love for the grave, as if world historical defeat were both inevitable and somehow to be welcomed. So, uh, you know, the matter, the moment, I think, is too serious for that. And so, to my mind, and, you know, in, 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 in essence here, I'm talking about why I do this, uh, and so if I may be permitted perhaps a little pretension, uh, listeners may not know, but I do actually attempt to avoid pretension on the show. Um, you know, one might draw, in, in undertaking kind of media projects like this, one might draw from Marx an analysis of capitalist production, right? That, that you know, intent to go to the heart, you know, you know to the heart of production itself. Uh, as well, I think, as rediscovering you know, something that is sometimes obscured in, in, you know, in left legacies, which is Marx's relation to the political tradition of republicanism in its concern for liberty, mm. uh, in its concern, you know, for, for freedom itself, which is often forgotten about Marx, subject of a, a quite, quite excellent recent book by William Clare Roberts. Um, also that book about his relationship with uh, Lincoln. Mm, Was it Robin Blackburn? Yeah. 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 Mm. Um, it might also draw from Weber, and now I know this is a heresy, it's a heresy that a lot of the left won't like. Weber is, after all, conservative, uh, conservative sociologist. It, but Weber has a sense of the scope of political work, its time, its duration, um, you know, the, the fact that it is long, um, that it is not opportunistic, the, the phrase that's used is slow and hard boring of boards. From Gramsci, a sense of uh, you know, the specific problem of political change as presented in liberal capitalist democracy, that is the centrality and limits of the franchise, the role of civil society. From someone like Lenin, you know, the, the appreciation of timing and moment of break and rupture. You know, there are many others we could add, and, and you know, my, my canon here is pretty idiosyncratic, but that kind of ambition, I think, is important. Mm. Well, we've got three minutes left. <laughs> I have to remind listeners that we have Navarra 40K right now. Navarra Media is trying to create a new media for different politics. So come and join us. Go to support.navarramedia.com and make a one-off payment or an ongoing subscription if you can afford to do so. We plan to do so much over the next year, don't we? Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're looking at over 200 original essays, events not just in Britain but elsewhere, including, I'm touching wood here, uh, a party at Labour Party conference, <laughs> a rave. <laughs> We'll start, you know, selling uh, ibuprofen to Labour special advisors or something else. <laughs> and, uh, uh, <laughs> and um, of course, more podcasts. This is Navarra FM on Residence 104.4 FM, London's number one radio station. But we also do other excellent podcasts, which you can check out on our website, on SoundCloud and at iTunes. And, of course, our wonderful videos, such as James's Terms of Engagement. <laughs> which are on our Facebook and our YouTube channel. If you've not subscribed to the latter, please do so. And also, please like the former. But, like I say, more than anything else, more than sharing, more than listening, even more than feeding back, 
giving financial support to Navarro Media really helps us. It really means a lot because the first thing we did, what was the first thing we did when we got that money after Navarro for 10K? We started paying people. We started paying contributors. We started paying videographers. We didn't start paying James and I, by the way. No. Which, that, <laughs> that can't carry on. But we anyway. want to carry on doing that and we want to pay them more we want to pay people market rates so like I say go to support.navarromedia.com and help us make a new media for a different politics great show James <laughs> my final points are yes we make history but not under conditions of our making I think the older I get the more reticent I become about the power of social media to change things mm. nevertheless it is a revolutionary media in a way that I think has actually been understated in many ways and I think it will make possible new political narratives, not just the next year or two, but the next decade or two. My name is Aaron Bastani. Thank you, James. Thank you. This is Navarra FM. We'll see you same time, same place next week. Bye. This show is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find articles, videos and more audio content like this, head to navarramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navarra Media can exist thanks to our subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. It won't just help us either. You will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navara Media. Media for a different politics.